if John Lennon was alive today, he'd be Kanye West. Hello, and welcome back to another Mind Matters. I'm Elon Martin, and with me in the studio today are Harrison Keeley and Adam Daniels. And recently, being Beatles fans, we watched a documentary called Get Back, which was 60 hours of live footage of the Beatles recording their music and preparing for a live concert. It's just, I should just butt in and say the documentary itself isn't 60 hours, but it's, it no. utilizes footage from 60 hours worth. Yes. It's the documentary was whittled down to eight hours and it was edited and cleaned up and put together in such a way as to make that 60 hours, uh, very enjoyable, um, and giving great, uh, insight into the creative process of what is arguably one of the most prolific and innovative and influential rock bands in history. Uh, anyone who's familiar with the Beatles knows at least a dozen songs that they probably like. Um, in any case, uh, while watching this documentary, uh, we were privy to a lot of, um, insights and uh, dimensions of personality uh, in the main, in the Beatles, uh, and especially John Lennon. And without giving too much away, um, there was, or were a lot of dynamics. Uh, we, can, we can spoil it. <laughs> you you want to spoil it? That's old news. <laughs> well, the, the bit that I was gonna uh, focus on uh, is new news. Um, in the sense that uh, there was a private conversation that was taped between um, Paul McCartney and John Lennon during a, a very crucial time in their recording of uh, these sessions. And what had happened was George Harrison uh, had effectively left the band and there were personality differences, creative differences, and uh, it, it fell upon John and Paul, who were the creators of the band and the senior most members and the um, the creative force largely uh, behind the Beatles to hash things out. And so uh, what Peter Jackson included in this documentary was this very intimate, honest, vulnerable, um, almost painful conversation between these two giants, where they talk about egos, they talk about uh, fear, uh, they talk about how uh, George Harrison had been uh, sidelined effectively. Um, and Paul and John actually did quite a bit of um, reflection in this short conversation uh, on their own behavior and trying to take responsibility. Uh, for for George's uh, reaction and desire to leave the band. And this discussion um, was a reminder, I think, to us about John Lennon's, um, not only his talent, uh, but his 
who he was as a person. Uh, because um, I don't know about you guys, but I've, I've seen a number of interviews with him where he can be very, uh, very harsh, uh, you know, whipsaw sharp in reacting to people. Uh, he had a sharp tongue, but this was a dimension to the man that was deeply caring, uh, willing to fess up to his own, um, his own shortcomings and his own uh, weaknesses. And um, it, it reflected a level of being, if you want to say that, that was impressive to me. And I think to us, it was, uh, it was a surprise uh, that, was, um, that showed a lot of insight into who he was as an individual and, um, and speaks a lot to what he was trying to accomplish in later years, uh, post-Beatles. And we'll get to that. So, um, needless to say, uh, or maybe it warrants saying, you know, th this conversation between uh, Lennon and McCartney, um, the honesty that they had with one another, and the new place that they had come to in being honest, was uh, carried forward in a in a second conversation and discussion that the group had together with George, where they're trying to get him back into the band and it worked um it was uh it was probably we're not privy to what was discussed with george but we imagined that that the work that these guys had done on themselves and with each other was what induced george to come back and and the whole rest of the documentary um demonstrates just what made this band so amazing and uh, how much they loved each other uh, and how much uh, creativity they were able to generate once they were able to get past this kind of, um, this emotional hurdle. Uh, so uh, there is that. Um, and what this, uh, what this kind of rediscovering of, of John had, um, had caused in us or in me was a revisiting of his uh, political activity and all the famous quotes uh, that have been attributed to him that uh, showed incredible levels of insight into, uh, you know, the, the state of uh, politics uh, in the West and in particular in the U.S. where he was trying to gain citizenship and where, because he was such a powerful um, deeply thoughtful voice for, uh, you know, ending war. War is over if you want it. Uh, he, he basically made enemies of the FBI, of the CIA, and of uh, Richard Nixon in particular in 1972, where, you know, there were these declassified memos that basically uh, called for, um, you know, planting drugs on Mr. Lennon and uh, trying to get him arrested and ultimately deported from the U.S., where he would be, you know, less likely a, a troublemaker. Um, and so uh, the, there is that about him. He had uh, he had some wonderful uh, quotes that I'd just like to read a few of. 
he said, you got to remember, establishment, it's just a name for evil. The monster doesn't care whether it kills all the students or whether there is a revolution. It's not thinking logically. It's out of control. And there's another couple of ones here. He says, this is probably one of his most famous. I think all our society is run by insane people for insane objectives. I think we're being run by maniacs for maniacal means. If anybody can put on paper what our government and the American government and the Russian Chinese, what they are trying to do and what they think they're doing, I'd be very pleased to know what they think they're doing. I think they're all insane, but I'm liable to be put away as insane for expressing that. That's what's insane about it. And one more, uh, this is when John Lennon was um, beginning a, a kind of anti-war movement, and he had just come off of uh, a, a concert where he gave a protest song about a poet who was imprisoned, um, a left-leaning poet, a very progressive poet by the name of John Sinclair who was put in prison basically in the early 70s for 10 years for being in possession of two marijuana cigarettes. So John Lennon goes out, he sings this song, and then within two days, the Supreme Court of Michigan uh, basically releases John Sinclair. So this was a demonstration to the US intelligence apparatus, uh, political infrastructure, of John Lennon's power, of his ability to influence, of his rationality. Uh, there are some people in uh, the government who had uh, called Lennon a, uh, a radical leftist. Uh, and uh, as we'll see with a few more quotes, he wasn't a radical leftist, he was a rational leftist. So there's one quote, um, this is from an article uh, written just a couple of years ago um, by, let's see what his name is. Oh, uh, I'll get the name in just a moment. But um, it says left-wing activists who were on government watch lists and who shared an interest in bringing down the Nixon administration had been congregating at Lenin's New York apartment. But when they revealed that they were planning to cause a riot, Lennon balked. As he recounted in a 1980 interview, quote, We said, we ain't buying this. We're not going to draw children into a situation to create violence, so you can overthrow what and replace it with what? It was all based on this illusion that you can create violence and overthrow what is, and get communism or get some right-wing lunatic or left-wing lunatic. They're all lunatics. So he was falling uh, or put himself outside of this, um, this left-wing versus right-wing paradigm. Uh, and this is evident with songs like Revolution, where, you know, he talks about or, or sings about, you know, uh, if, if you're going to go along with Chairman Mao, you're not going to make it with anybody anyhow. Uh, so he was against this, this kind of 
uh, radical left, reactionary, crazy-making, uh, violent behavior. Uh, he was he was all about um, ideas and and bringing those ideas through his music, through his art, to uh, a a very large number of people. He already had an incredible built-in audience, people who were paying attention to his music and to his words. Uh, so he was, a, he was a force to be reckoned with. And unfortunately, um, in December of 1980, his, his life was uh, cut tragically short. He was uh, killed, assassinated by Mark David Chapman. Um, just outside of John Lennon's Dakota uh, residence in New York City. And uh, Chapman is an interesting figure. He had actually two months earlier gone to New York City from, I think it was Hawaii, where he lived with his wife, and, and made his first foray, his first uh, attempt at killing Lennon, but decided that he, he didn't want to do it came back to Hawaii, fessed up to his wife, and then a few months later came back to New York and, and actually went through with the act. Uh, only earlier in the day uh, that Chapman had killed Lennon um, with four uh, gunshots to Lennon's back, um, he had met Lennon in Central Park or in the vicinity of the Dakota building and asked Lennon to write his autograph. Uh, to autograph some some albums, and in interviews, Chapman says that that Lennon was actually extremely gracious and kind to him, and and even asked Chapman if there was anything else he could do for him. All the while, he had some place to go, and and was uh, you know ready to leave with Yoko to to a recording or, or some other um, appointment. So you know <laughs> the. Uh, such a senseless murder, um, but certainly not senseless to individuals who may or may not have induced Chapman to to kill Lennon. And there are some reasons to suggest that Chapman was a kind of uh, brainwashed subject, a la you know, Sirhan Sirhan or, or any of these other quote-unquote low-nut individuals. Uh, the policemen who took him in, um, two of them had separately made statements to say that Chapman looked like he was programmed, uh, was behaving and sounding like he was programmed. And they knew how crazy that sounded, and yet they said it to the press. Uh, and there, there have been books um, written on the subject. So uh, I think we can assign a fair probability to the idea that uh, Lenin was, um, after a, a bout with heroin addiction and, and coming back into his own and about to release his double fantasy album, uh, really continuing to be a political force to be reckoned with. And uh, we can talk about, you know, some of the dimensions to his personality that, that haven't been mentioned that, that made him such a, an incredible person and um, such, a, such an effective voice 
for uh, anti-war um, movements and and free speech, uh, because just as a reminder, I mean, there's a lot of information to suggest that uh, you know Martin Luther King's um, venturing into the anti-war movement after the civil rights movement was ultimately what triggered the response from the U.S. government and uh, and military agencies to to have him assassinated. So anything that was too powerfully anti-war and too effective um, and couldn't easily be pigeonholed as a radical left or crazy force that can easily be uh, subverted and imprisoned was a real threat to the interests of um, the U.S. and the West in, in maintaining the war industry and subjecting countries around the world to its uh, political whims. So, well, that was um, so like you were talking about uh, it's his anti-war stance that uh, at least from my like you know very limited knowledge of of John Lennon because I was I was never a huge Beatles fan growing up. Um, my dad was, but uh, and some other songs you know I I really enjoyed, but it wasn't my particularly favorite genre. So I never really looked much into you know who they were and what they did in terms of like people, not just like Beatles the band, but people. So from my limited perspective, uh, it does seem like the anti-war stance of John Lennon is the thing that was most mm, scary and from the point of view of, uh, from the point of view of the establishment. Mm -hmm. um, it's like uh, we said on our show last week with Richard Spence, war is a very, very profitable, if not the most profitable industry. Uh, so anything that seeks to shut that down is uh, very, very dangerous. Uh, there was somebody that I knew who was uh, talking about like working in a casino industry. And they were like, if you want to know like the best piece of advice I could give you, don't mess with the man's money. That will get you screwed. And, and I mean, granted, he was talking specifically about, you know, the, the casino industry and not trying to screw over a casino because that's a bad idea because, uh, you know, they'll, they've got the money to take you to court and all that fun stuff. But uh, it's applicable here, too, uh, where all of these different uh, political figures, you know, like how many people within the current U.S. government have you know, millions of dollars of stocks and stock options or whatever for like Raytheon mm -hmm. or uh, some other, you know, like Lockheed Martin. Um, not a small number. So anything that kind of, anything that would cut into those, uh, the profit margins of those companies, well, then you're talking about butting heads with, the heads of state, which is, you know, how you end up dead. <laughs> uh, but it was interesting to me how 
um, because you have to look at everything into its context. And so one of the things about the 60s and the 70s was, you know, the, um, at least from, you know, previous shows that we've done, there was the, the infestation of uh, academia with postmodernism, postmodern thought, and also um, like Frankfurt School style uh, communist infused postmodernism. Mm-hmm. And, and it was an attempt to subvert uh, academia for communist ends uh, from that perspective. And, um, and so that's, that's kind of part of the context uh, of where Lenin was kind of battling it, battling it out and looking for answers and thinking things through. Um, and like you said, he wasn't, they couldn't pigeon pigeonhole him in like a communist, radical communist uh, hole, which would have been perfectly fine for them. You know, it would have been better for them had he done so, because then they could, they would have something more tangible with which to smear him. Mm-hmm. But because he wasn't a, a violent radical, that made things very tricky for them. And so the fact that he was anti-war and he was peaceful about it and realized, and this is one of the things about him that I kind of want to look more into is just the things that he said is, is in a sense, postmodern. He's rejecting uh, meta narratives, both from the conservative standpoint and from uh, the, the left standpoint, you know, communism uh, is a meta narrative and and he rejected that openly rejected that mm-hmm. so in that sense he's he's postmodern but not in the sense of having been duped into um becoming the thing that he was trying to rail against like he he very much was his own person with his own mind right i think and, that's the most important thing is that um well, he was an artist, like first and foremost, and like literally like poet, artist, musician. And in that sense, he was a true postmodernist in that like some of the Beatles work in the mid to late sixties was extremely postmodern. They did. And that's what, that's where postmodernism first got put into practice. It was in art. So you had, you know, art, whole art movements that were postmodern in the sense of like cubism and abstract expressionism and things like that. And, and so John, and of course, also through his relationship with Yoko, who is also a postmodern artist, um, that just like, he was a postmodernist in the sense of, he was kind of like a, an intuitive and like, I'd say like an unschooled postmodernist, which a lot of artists are. It's not like, like, <clears throat> the most postmodern artists probably haven't read any books by any actual postmodern philosopher. Um, it's just they get it intuitively because that's what they're like, and that's the feature that that I think is most prominent in in John Lennon in, in all these features of his personality. It's his creativity. Um, the way the, the interesting thing is how they all those things tied together. Um, the facts of his personality, just who he was with the contingencies of the life that he led. So if you look at the Beatles, one of the interesting things about the 
the documentary is, well, first of all, there is a, like a, a tiny short mini documentary at the very beginning that goes over their history, kind of just leading up to these recording sessions, which were in January, 1969, they'd been, um, they hadn't toured in like two or three years, they, you know, no public appearances really because the, and I think, I don't know if this is an accurate summary, but based on that little documentary, it was probably after the, the Beatles went on tour I think it was in 66 in the US and John Lennon made, John Lennon made, John Lennon made that infamous statement about him or them being like bigger than Jesus and the, that caused a whole bunch of controversy and then very soon after that they quit touring they had to in a in a in a precursor to modern cancel culture they had to make public apologies and and say oh I, I didn't really mean it like that I'm Mia sorry culpa, I'm sorry I offended um, people by comparing myself with Jesus or something like that, you know, and he kind of said, well, it was taken out of context and that's not really what I meant. Kind of had to, uh, you know, backpedal a little bit on that. So anyways, that's the context of this, of this, uh, documentary. And like Elon said at the beginning, the Beatles were extremely prolific. Like Lennon and McCartney were one of the kind of songwriting duos of the, of humanity. And, uh, they were at times re releasing like three albums a year. So in the studio constantly and writing songs. And so they haven't been in the public eye for two or three years. And so they start 1969 with this plan to do a TV special and record an album and, uh, and do a TV special album and do a concert. So their first concert in years. And they've only got a, they've only got like three weeks to do it. I think they, I think originally it might've only been like two and a half weeks or something. Um, because Ringo had to star in a film, uh, he was starting shooting at the end of January. So they had to put together like an album's worth or, or a, a concert's worth of new songs in order to perform. And they get into this big studio where they're going to film Ringo's, uh, film Ringo's movie. And right away in those first days, they, they get there and, um, the sound isn't very good. They don't like it. You can tell none of them really want to be there. They're, they're not smiling. They're not having fun. Um, like my impression after watching the first half or the first part, first part of three, which ends with George quitting the band and walking out is like, they, they were just kind of like dicking around. They were like, they, they'd bring in a few new songs, but they weren't really working very hard. They weren't really communicating with each other. It was just like, oh, wow, that was an unproductive eight days um, out of the two and a half weeks they have to, to put together 14 songs. Um, but one of the things that happens is like in those, in those, the, like, I don't know if it was day six or seven, um, they're trying to figure out, like, they don't have anything planned. They don't, uh, they don't know where they're going to do the concert. They're not, they, they're not sure how they're going to do it. One of their producers is, is like pushing for them to film it in Libya in at the, like the old Roman Coliseum there or, or theater amphitheater and um but they don't know what they're going to do they uh, th this film crew's filming f filming this documentary they don't really know what how it's going to turn out and um one of the captions that peter jackson puts on is that you know this one morning um paul mccartney was kind of feeling the pressure and you know um kind of worried about what's what the, the the fate of the project and what they're actually going to do and he's just sitting there like noodling on his guitar and you see him actually write uh get back and you can tell that 
that he's coming up with it for the first time. Well, maybe he had like a, a little bit of an idea for a chord progression, but he starts playing something and you sound, oh, that sounds kind of familiar. And then as it goes on, it just kind of takes shape. And, and then he's got the, the kernel of the song right there. And then that was musically, that was one of the most important, one of the most interesting things for me to watch was the development of that song. I think that's why Peter Jackson called it get back. Well, one of the reasons of course, cause it's uh, a propos in, in many ways. Um, but, then after that, they decide to move into Apple Studios, their production company, and an actual recording studio to record some stuff. And a couple things happen. Well, first, it sounds better in there. They feel comfortable in there. It's not this big cavernous space. Um, so it's a more conducive environment, both sonically and um, just um, spatially. And then they, an old friend of theirs, um, Billy, what's his name? Preston. Billy Preston, um, the keyboard player for who did he play with? Um, was it Little Richard? No, Little Richard. Well, he 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 played with a lot of different artists, but he was featured as his his own. No, but who was? Remember, they mentioned he was the the main keyboardist for um, for somebody in Hamburg. My, yeah, it might have been. It might have been where they Little met, Richard. Anyway. But anyway, so he was friends with the band, and he shows up, and they'd just been talking about like needing a keyboard player, and um, no, it wasn't Little Richard. Uh, I can't remember. But so he just sits down with them and starts playing, and they're like, "Oh, hey, do you, you know, this is this is great." And they eventually ask him to. Well, he's he's there for the rest of the recording um, for the next week or two weeks, and from that first day of him playing there, like he, he's a fan of the band. He was, he would come to watch them and request songs and they got along. And, and so he's just jazzed to be there. Like he's happy, like he's smiling. He's having the, the time of his life being able to play with the Beatles. Right. And so I think it was that kind of combination of, of a bunch of things. It was the introduction of, of Billy. It was getting George back in the band. They'd kind of established a kind of um, plan for, for how to proceed interpersonally and musically and the the new space that you you could see the change in all of them how it kind of loosened things up and let them enjoy themselves and from then on the the kind of the the creative juices start flowing you can see how they 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 kind of they gel and um and things come together now so that was the the main, so that was leads, refers back to the, that main point about John Lennon was the, the creativity because primarily the impression you get from the impression you get from watching this is that first of all, it's, it's fun. It's fun seeing all their personalities because they're, they're so different, but they're similar in certain ways. Like they're really goofy. Like they're just goofing around all the time, um, in a really endearing way for the most part, like, um, and that's an aspect of their of the creativity too. So they're supposed to be recording this album right and coming up with new songs. And they they go through and play like and at the credits at the end of the <clears throat> at the end of each episode, it goes through all the songs that they've played. And it's like probably like a hundred songs, but old songs of theirs, classics, traditional songs. Um, they're just jamming for the most part and just having fun. Um, <clears throat> which gives the impression, well, that kind of gives the impression that, well, why aren't you guys actually working? Um so, but that was kind of necessary for this creative process. And you can see this in John uh, at, at several points. Like at one point, um, it's either George or Paul were trying to come up with some lyrics and didn't know what to say. And then uh, John says something like, oh, you just say the first thing. That, oh, I sound Scottish. Mm -hmm. Say the first thing that comes into your head. You just, you just 
Just say, say what it comes just, in your head. Yeah, just say what comes in your head, man. Mm-hmm. And uh, and just kind of just let it flow. And you can see th- that come out a lot in the in his interactions. How and he's got it. He's very very quick, um, like mm-hmm. imp- improvisational in his in his speech, mm-hmm. uh, improvisational and poetic. So he can he would be able to to basically put on a put on a role that he would play and and they would play act with each other like especially him and Paul they'd go back back and forth with, with each other like in character mm-hmm. whoever those characters happen to be that those would be the ones that they're playing and so it's that kind of just openness that i think factors into um well a lot of a lot of his his later political activity um well in his political thoughts because like I said, it's not, he doesn't, he doesn't come across at all as like a schooled, uh, a schooled leftist or a schooled political person. It's no, he was just, he was just open, um, intuitive and, and therefore, well, and, 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 uh, um, like an individualist, he, he, he did things his way and that that's kind of, um, he and Paul both, and that kind of caused some of the tensions and George. So that caused some of the interpersonal tensions. But so John was one of those people that wouldn't get caught up in a, in a group dynamic, you know, he, so he's gathered, he's got all these leftist radicals and they say something he doesn't agree with. Well, he'll disagree with them. He's not going to just go along with the crowd. So he had his own, um, um, well, he had his own limits and he had his, his own kind of developed, um, like personal philosophy that, you know, probably couldn't be put into words or he wouldn't have put it like he wouldn't have written a like a manifesto on his all his political thoughts i think the impression i get again is that it basically all that kind of came intuitively to him because he was an intuitive person like an extremely intuitive person and so the the last kind of thing major factor that that i see that kind of came into this is just going back to the the beatles career in the 60s is that them, and this is probably one of the most important things is that they were hugely popular. So they got hugely popular as being a pop band. So everyone knew who they were and, and therefore he had, well, John Lennon specifically had a, a captive audience. And that's kind of, that's pretty much the most important thing. If he was just some indie band, you know, guy, and he wouldn't have made, he wouldn't have had that much of an impact and wouldn't have been seen as that much of a threat. It's because he had such popularity that, that, um, that, that he became so dangerous. So those, yeah, well, so there's that just a couple more things on, on the documentary itself. Um, and, and on that conversation that Dylan brought up. Well, I would just add that, you know, he quite often, you know, said, hey, we're all about peace and love. And this wasn't for him a cliche. It wasn't for him uh, some kind of uh, airy-fairy, um, you know, lightly said, uh, trendy statement. He, he meant it. He, he applied uh, what peace and love meant um, for himself uh, in, interpersonally with, uh, with his family, with the band. Um, but he, he also quite obviously thought about what it meant in the macro sense. What is peace and love really? How are we going to get there? Uh, you know, writ large, how are we all going to get there together? Well, um, I, I think in that sense, well, I, even if he didn't intend it as cliche, I think because he was an intuitive artist, he does come off as kind of naive. Like it's, he wasn't, 
he didn't have it all figured out. You know, he had his ideals, he had his, his values, but he, I mean, even the fact that he was hanging out with radical leftists in the first place, like he's, he was kind he was kind of naive and, uh, like didn't really have a plan, um, or, or the kind of awareness to be able to, to realize that he shouldn't be hanging out with a lot of those people in the first place. Mm -hmm. Like, um, and that, that's why like he, he's not, well, that's one of the reasons I think why he's, he's not like a personal hero of mine. I, I like him. I, I, I appreciate a lot of what he did and, and, and his music, but he, he, he how to, I'm not sure how to quite formulate it, but. Well, I, uh, I think I know what you're saying, yeah. Harrison. I, yeah. I mean, he was, he was a, a lefty artist, idealistic artist. I mean, like, Ooh, mm -hmm. imagine there's no religion. It's like, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll think that through a little bit. Like he had, he had these kind of grand ideas, but sure. wasn't, he wasn't a genius, like uh, like an intellectual genius. No, yeah. but but I would just say that the the man's life was cut short at forty, mm -hmm. and if if what he was able to um, begin to do uh, post Beatles uh, was any indication, I mean, who who knows? Yeah. You know, uh, I'm not saying he would have been you know the next Martin Luther King exactly, but it is interesting that in those sessions he does. He does talk about listening to Martin Luther King's speech. He does talk about yeah, uh, the, both. Uh, the the inspiration uh, and the uh, the poetry of speeches of King's speech, and the uh, the ability uh, the high ability to communicate certain ideas uh, very very powerfully. And you know when when uh, Lenin was assassinated. Uh, there was a, an outpouring of grief and um, and community uh, by millions around the world that was uh, compared at the time to the outpourings at the assassinations of Martin Luther King, RFK, and JFK. And so, you know, even if he was not able to, at the end of the day, accomplish uh, with a you know, any kind of logical plan or an organization, uh, those things that, that, that the others uh, were working on. I think he was probably well on his way to um, a level of self-actualization uh, in, in, a, in a bigger, much bigger context than, you know, than he was able to, to ultimately do. So for me, it's like a, you know, he's not, Dag Hammarskjöld, he's not, you know, JFK or RFK, but he, there was- For an artist. For, <laughs> but he, there were all, all the, all the raw material and intention and, and intuition, as you were saying earlier, uh, all the, the drive, all the creativity was just latent and, and, uh, you know, uh, forming itself into even greater levels of, of, um, self-empowerment and, and empowerment of others to think on in, in different ways about things and to bring a, awareness to things in, in ways that, you know, had never been done before or never, never would have been done in quite the same way that he would have. Did you have something to say, Adam? So you got your thinking face on. I got my thinking face on. Um, well, I was just, uh, trying to see if I could in my mind figure out where he would have ended up and where he would have gone as a, as a person. It's like you said, Harrison, he was, he was naive. He was idealistic. 
And you need that mm-hmm. uh, culturally, for one. Individually, it works better as a to be a practical, a practicalist. I, I don't know what that word would be. Pragmatic. To be pragmatic, yeah. Um, but you need a, a culture needs idealists in order to send out the call mm-hmm. for the more practical people to come up with actual, like real world, tangible, like boots on the ground um things that can be done to bring us from where we are to where Mm -hmm. we want to be Mm -hmm. where we could be um and so that's well that's part of the thing about you know creativity and and art and that's one of the things that art's supposed to do it's supposed to call to you it's a call uh for something higher from something higher to to reach a higher level um, and that was, you know, who he kind of embodied or, or what he embodied was, was that vessel, uh, for the call and in some sense actualized some of those things. Um, he wasn't perfect. Um, like I was reading, uh, about his first wife and how his first wife said that at one point, um, he, John Lennon became very, uh, jealous and possessed, or he was jealous and possessive. And so at one point she had gone out and was dancing with, with somebody at some place. And, and, uh, in the heat of the moment, he hit her. I used to be mean to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. And that was exactly, uh, what he said about why he wrote that mm. is that was what he was referring to. Um, I didn't mean to hurt you. I didn't mean to make you cry. I'm just a jealous guy. (laughs) So that's, I mean, that's insightful in and of itself. And the fact that he confessed up to it and she, and then she goes on to say that he never hit her again. Um, he still had issues with being, uh, curt and having using cutting remarks, you know, that's kind of the double-edged sword of having that, that quick wit ability to strike at things like a, like a viper Mm -hmm. when, when the, when the time calls for it, it's great, but when it's not the right time for it, it can, it can cause some, you know, some emotional uh, and relational problems. And so that seems to have been, you know, some, some of how that manifested uh, for him personally and interpersonally. Um, There there are anecdotes uh, of, other musicians who were close to John Lennon and, and other bands, because many many of them knew each other, communicated, hung out with one another, who who said that they had, um, you know, they would go to John uh, to talk about particular issues and and things that they had, were going through, and in their experience, you know, he was very helpful, very insightful guy who, who was able to give good advice. So it seems to me that, you know, like everyone, um, he was on his own kind of path to growth and, uh, and had, um, and had realized, uh, to some great degree that, that he could, you know, he could be doing an incredible, 
amount of good for people by being, um, by having humility, by being of service to his friends, by championing causes. I mean, how many stories of, of pop stars do we hear where, you know, they, they live to gratify their own hedonistic uh, lives for the most part. And so that's another big observation that, that was made about John Lennon is that he, he could have, um, you know, he could have just lived for his, his own uh, self-indulgent uh, existence, uh, but he, he chose after he had gotten over a, a bad bout of drug addiction to kind of uh, reinvigorate his political, um, his political life and his, his, what he must have felt as a kind of responsibility to uh, give voice to things that, um, that others weren't. You know, if John Lennon was alive today, he'd be Kanye West. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be visiting Putin. <laughs> No, Kanye is kind of like, of course, they're different in so many ways, but uh, he's kind of like a modern John Lennon in the sense of the the popular, the, just that that huge kind of pop idol status. Everyone knows who he is, and he's, um, to his own detriment, you know, um, such a an individualist and such a um, his own person you know, that he doesn't care what anyone else thinks. He'll just say whatever, whatever he wants. There's, there's that similarity to them. Like, uh, you know, Kanye also is that kind of creative type. Um, so I, I see, I see, I see that. echoes. Yes. Yeah. Between Kanye and, and John Lennon. Is, is Kanye just John Lennon reincarnated? <laughs> <laughs> That's Be too silly. Yeah. Because question. John, John Lennon faked his own Maybe. death. Yeah. He, and he got a, uh, racial reassignment surgery <laughs> mm. could could be and and now Kanye is hanging out with the clone of Paul McCartney <laughs> <laughs> not the clone he's the replacement the replacement I yeah. see get well, your get your conspiracy theories <laughs> straight here um so that's uh that's an interesting kind of anecdote about him as a, as a person, because it, it, it makes sense that he would be able to do the same kind of open, creative, intuitive, and empathetic mm -hmm. interaction with his, with his friends, with his peers mm -hmm. that he would have with the society at large, because that seemed to be kind of like his, his thing was uh, an intuitive empathy mm -hmm. um, and, and a creative uh, processing of, of a situation. And so is, you know, all that combined with a quick wit, you know, he can give you some really good advice on the spot. I thought I, I might've mentioned this on a previous show, but uh, Gary Zukov had a good, um, a helpful distinction. Uh, it was helpful to me. Uh, in in the exercise of power, uh, there being two types. One is kind of like the uh, the the power that we all are most familiar with in, in thinking of power, and that is you know the politician, the the businessman who exerts power for good or ill 
over others. Uh, sometimes because it's the right thing to do, and sometimes because uh, they just can. And then there was another um, another definition, which was uh, authentic power, which is uh, you know which speaks to that um, you know individualism uh, that you were mentioning earlier, Harrison, where the you know the the conscience of an individual the uh the drive the the uh level of you know soul strength if you will of of a person um exerts this authentic power this power of uh you know benevolence and um and and knowledge and uh kind of intuitive positive constructive influence over one's self um uh persons in one sphere and uh, by extension and sometimes you know with a really super authentically powerful person uh you know this this more macro influence that people like king had that people like um uh malcolm x in his later years had uh and lenin Well, do we want to try and figure out what kind of brain John Lennon had? <laughs> well, I wanted to, I'll read something uh, from the matter of the matter with things um, just as kind of a uh, loosely related just on creativity because McGilchrist has a, a good, uh, well, he's got a whole chapter on creativity and I want to read something about Mozart, uh, seeing as how we're talking about musicians. Because McGilchrist's kind of like, he, he goes through the debate on what the nature of creativity is. And, you know, a lot of scientists are trying to figure out, have been trying to figure out <clears throat> how that, how that works in the brain and what the process is. There's a, he, he's got an appendix in the book, um, criticizing this one guy who, who wrote a book and some papers dismissing the idea that, uh, creativity has anything specific to do with the right hemisphere. And uh, Miguel Chris basically shows that he's wrong, <laughs> wrong, yeah. um, that uh, the right hemisphere is immensely important for creativity, which will become uh, more understandable as we proceed with shows this year, because we'll be talking about this book a bunch. But I want to read in, in this context, talking about the creative process, he quotes a letter from Mozart to a Baron B who had inquired about how he set about writing and how it was that his work was so individual and distinctive. So Mozart wrote back, how do I write and how do I come to flesh out what are large general ideas? I really can't tell you any more than this because I myself don't know any more about it and can't get any further with it. It's when I'm feeling right and things are good perhaps riding in a coach or taking a walk after a good meal or in the night when I can't sleep. These are the best times when thoughts come flowing into my mind like a stream. How they come and where they come from, I don't know, and I can't do anything about it. The ones I like, I keep in my head and, I, and go around humming them. At least that's what people tell me. If I hang on to them, I soon come to see one by one how to use such and such a phrase how to make a tasty dish out of them all using counterpoint and respecting the timbre of the different instruments, etc., etc., etc. 
That fires up my soul, and as long as I am not distracted, the work grows. I expand it, and it becomes clearer, until I have the thing pretty much finished in my head, even if it's long. So, so that from then on, I see it all in my mind's eye at a glance, much as one sees a beautiful picture or a pretty woman. And I don't hear it sequentially in my imagination, as it will have to be later on, but, as it were, all at once. When I later come to write it down, I just take straight out of my brain box what's already assembled there, as I've explained. For that reason, it goes down on paper pretty quickly, since, as I say, it's really already finished, and rarely turns out much different from what was in my head all along. That's why I don't mind being disturbed while writing, and I quite like all sorts of things going on all around me. I carry on writing just the same, and can even chat away at the same time about hens and geese, or Jack and Jill, or whatever. As to how it is that during the process my pieces come to take on a Mozartian form or style, one not like anybody else's, it's like asking why my nose is big and curved. It's Mozartian, and not like other people's. I don't aim for distinctiveness, and I can't really describe what's different about my style, but it's obvious that people who really have something particular about them will be different from each other on the inside as well as on the outside. All I know is that I am not the author of either kind of difference. So, uh, maybe I'll just read a little bit of McGilchrist's comment on that. Well, yeah. you know what that reminds me of quite a bit? Uh, we were lucky enough to have author Mary Bellog on the show mm -hmm. some months back who described her process of, of writing her novels. And um, just to put it into perspective, if anybody's missed a show, you know, the romantic novel is uh, widely considered to be one of the most uh, widely read um, genre of novel um, in the US. And she's arguably one of the leading authors of that genre. Anyway, um, having enjoyed a lot of her novels, we asked her about the creative process and, you know, she gave uh, an answer that's at least consistent with what you've read there, Harrison. It's kind of mm -hmm. like, um, she doesn't know where the ideas come from. She just allows herself to receive and doesn't, I guess she doesn't question it too much. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. It's yeah. been several months since we've heard that description. She, she made the distinction between plotters and pantsers. Mm -hmm. So the pantsers are the ones that fly by the seat of the, their pants, and then the plotters are the ones that plot everything out. So the plotting everything out, that's a very left-brain activity, following rules, having a structure, and then pantsing is very right-brain. You just open up your mind and see the whole and see what happens, and it's very improvisational, mm -hmm. like you know, like John Lennon's personality, as I mentioned. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, that's a that's a, a perfect example of that. Um, I hadn't thought of that when reading, but yeah, it, it is a perfect example. He gives one more with Handel, um, who wrote The Messiah. I'll read this paragraph. Approaching four hours worth of some of the greatest and most inspired music ever written in just over three weeks, between 22nd August and 14th September, 1741. Interestingly, while still recovering from his left hemisphere stroke. So I think as we mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, left hemisphere, I don't know if I mentioned it actually, but left hemisphere, left hemisphere strokes have the tendency of releasing the right hemisphere. So kind of like a creativity boost in this case. So of those three weeks of inspired creation, during which music seemed to pour out of him, he said, and I'll add um, paraphrasing uh, Paul in one of his letters, whether I was in my body or out of my body, I know not, God knows it. 
he also he also said um i did think i did see all heaven before me and the great god himself so in the particularly in the mozart one there's some well there's some interesting things in there um but one that relates back to the beatles thing is that he he mentions mozart that uh that he needs to be feeling right and things are good. So you could see that in the documentary, how things just weren't feeling right or good for those first, that first week or so in the, in the studio. And, um, and then once, once the environment kind of opened up, that really, that really opened the band up. And, um, but one of the, one of the other interesting things that we hadn't brought up yet is, uh, well, Paul McCartney, um, I mentioned him writing get back, but, there, yeah. Some some of the most enjoyable parts for me were watching Paul. Um, I think he's he's my favorite Beatle. But um, near the end, right before the concert, like a few days before the concert, well, so yeah, a couple things on that. So they're worrying about the concert, whether they're going to do it, how they're going to do it, and they're they're kind of having this conversation about trying to plan it. And they 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 realize they're, they they realize they only have like six songs, and they're like, "Well, we can't have a six song concert. What are we actually going to do?" Paul's trying to to get them to to come up with a plan, and John's just kind of sitting there being like, mm, "Okay, mm, yep," and uh, and okay, so what do we what do we do with six songs? Maybe we just do a six song concert, which is what they ended up doing, but for other reasons, and. And then they're, then they're like, oh, well, let's just, let, who's got the list of our songs? So, so they're, they're like producer guy, Mal, he brings out the list of songs and they're like, oh, oh, we've got like 12 songs. It's like, we're good. <laughs> no, he didn't. So they didn't even realize that they, they had enough songs actually worked out. You know, they'd been focusing so much on these six songs that they'd kind of forgotten the other ones. So, so that, that was kind of a, a relief for them. But then Paul says, um, might've been right before that, that, the thing about the Beatles is that when they're pushed up against the wall, that's when they come through. So if they if they if they've got a deadline, he knows that when they get on stage, they're going to put on a great show. They're gonna they're gonna pull through, and that's actually what happens. Mm -hmm. So watching it, you can see throughout this these few weeks, you can see their doubts and wondering what where this is going. I mean, the the film crew, the film director is kind of like, well, we don't really have a story. It's like what what's going on? Um, it's just a whole bunch of random stuff. And I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, well, is this going to turn out? It's like, what, how, how does this, how does this end? Cause I, I, you know, I, I wasn't really familiar with the story. I wasn't sure exactly how, how it was all going to play out. And then, um, so they have that conversation and then in like a day or a day and a half might've even been, I think they had two days at that point to work to before the show. And then they'd, oh, one other thing, they ended up doing this rooftop concert, right? So they're, they don't know what the concert's going to be like for, for a long time, for, for all these weeks. And then um, the, at a particularly stressful point in the studio, um, two, of the, two of their guys come up with the idea for this rooftop concert. And you can see it was captured on, on film when they were telling Paul about it. And Paul's like, you know, and he's listening to them and he goes. In slow motion. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, his face like lights up. He's like, that's a great idea. And I was, I was just like, oh, that, like, that, was, that was one of the great moments. So they decided to do this rooftop concert, which was kind of just genius, again, in this postmodern sense, because they get up on the, on the concert. And of course, no one can see them. Mm -hmm. And they can't see anyone because they're at the top of this building in London. And, uh, and they play a great show. And, and the cops show up and shut down the show. And it's, it's, uh, so it's got drama and the, the band is tight and everything sounds good. They're having a great time up there. 
And so it, it the, like the documentary, it came, came together mm -hmm. and this whole month kind of really came together, even though the cops ended up shutting it down, but that even just heightened the entertainment value of it. And as the cops are there, there, their people are stalling the cops down, downstairs in the studio. And eventually they come up, um, onto the roof and you see Paul turning around and he sees him and he's just having the time of his life. He's having a great time. Um, a, a little bit of, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, rule breaking, mm -hmm. you know, he's having a, he's, he's having a great time breaking the rules. And, uh, th that was just a, a joy to watch because of course you see the people on the streets, there's people complaining. Of course, most people are enjoying it. Um, but you have the couple of the old stodgy people have been like, there's the, the lady saying, Oh, I, I was having my nap and they woke me up and I don't like it one bit. <laughs> and, uh, and some people said, oh, this is terrible for business. We can't do anything here. And, uh, and so, of course, the cops have to shut them down. Cops are like 19 years old. Oh, we didn't mention that the Beatles themselves, they're all like 28, 29 in this. So just a, as a reference, so they're youngins, but that seems to do when, that seems to be when a lot of artists are at their most creative is in their 20s. But, um, well, but yeah. Just a couple of quick points about mm -hmm. that also. And that is that the, that the rooftop concert was, um, right above their production mm -hmm. studio. So they had only to go upstairs to, to, you know, not go to Tripoli at this Roman amphitheater, not go to this, uh, you know, to this other estate or other building at the, the other side of town, but, but, you know, it was an easy solution. It was a creative solution and it was so successful and they sounded so good. Uh, that a couple of the songs that they had played, uh, during that short concert were actually, um, put on the LPs that they were of such a high quality. Um, so it was really true. I mean, they were, you know, under all of this kind of uncertainty and pressure, you know, they had gelled so much by the end of those, uh, four weeks or so that they were able to, you know, in the cold, in the middle of January on a roof, not in the studio, um, you know, go to, uh, go to this great performance and, and get a couple of uh, pieces of music that would be forever enshrined and embedded in in the in the in the minds and hearts of of music lovers. Um, so it's it was it's quite a a bit of history and a a kind of um, a little bit of a, a part of their legacy that they were able to get back, come together, uh, and uh, and and do this performance and come out with. Um, I think two more albums uh, before they finally <clears throat> broke up for good. Well, yeah, one more in addition to Let It Be. So they did Let It Be, and then they then later that year they worked on Abbey Road, and then they broke up. Yeah, I want to say that uh, the rooftop performance was worth the yeah. the price of admission. Yeah, which yeah. is you know the previous mm -hmm. like the seven hours or whatever whatever it was like that that alone was worth the price of admission between uh the the tight performance of of the band itself to the reactions of of all of the people on the streets uh because they had a camera crew down there doing interviews of people and they're like oh do you know who you're listening to no i don't know who it is but i like it and then a couple of being like that's the beatles uh obviously obviously <laughs> So that was really, um, that was really good. And then, yeah, the, the reactions to the cops coming 
like Ringo playing the drums and then just looking over like, Hey, what's going on? I'm Ringo. And then, yeah, the, the smirk of somebody who knows they're breaking the rules and is getting away with it is from both Paul and John and George mm-hmm. is just, yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, that was worth it. Is there any other points that, uh, that might be made about this? Any last thoughts? No. No. Well, we thank you folks for listening once again, and uh, we look forward to catching up a little bit um, on the reading of The Matter of Things by Ian McGilchrist. By all accounts, it it, uh, it looks like um, a heck of a, a work to, to uh, absorb and to uh, uh, glean uh, valuable info about. Um, and I think that's essentially it. Uh, we hope you guys have a great week and uh thanks again for listening